You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for February 2019. Today's episode is titled, Leading Called People. Organizations that train people in a Christian work ethic and employ people aligned with their individual callings maximize the opportunity for temporal success. God works with intent and purpose in every area of life, individually and organizationally. Consequently, people are not fungible. They must be employed according to their callings. Failure to do so is abusive. In addition, workers must embrace a sound work ethic, including valuing temporal work as part of their individual calling. When organizational leaders build based on biblical principles, excellent products and services will be delivered. All will be blessed, and God will be glorified. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Leading Called People. Well, this morning we want to talk about Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 through 24. And in specific, we want to talk about the singular call, a singular call. We're talking about Paul's singular call, and we want to talk about how we each have a singular call in a sense. Paul's singular call is very unique, and uh, this text deals with that. It's a great way to begin to see some of how God works through the concept of singularities. In the first century, the understanding of the advent of Jesus as the Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, was progressively revealed by the Holy Spirit to the early church. Initially, the church was Jewish, and consequently, there was a natural proclivity to attempt to reconcile the gospel of Christ with Judaism. But when Judaism surprisingly experienced the saving work of Christ, you know, they naturally thought that you had to become a Jew and obey the law to be a Christian. So was that true? This was the issue that led to the first church council. This council concluded that Gentiles should not be burdened with the requirement to obey the law of Moses, something that the Jews did not do well themselves. Rather, God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles just as he did to the Jews by grace. Therefore, the council concluded that Gentiles did not have to obey the law to be saved, but recommended some stipulations to be given to them. In other words, salvation for the Gentiles would be grace plus a few works. So note the words of the council. This is Acts chapter 15, uh, verses 6 through 20. I'm going to read it. Uh, I'm not going to spend much time on it. I just want to read it so you hear uh, what happened there at that, on that council. The apostles and elders would gather together to consider this matter. That's the matter of whether or not the Gentiles had to become Jews and obey the law to be Christians. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the hearts, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You see, both the Gentiles and Jews are going to be saved the same way, but it's by grace. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So you have Peter, Barnabas and Paul, all bearing witness to the council here about how the Gentiles had received the gospel 
by grace through faith in Christ alone. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles. This is talking about Cornelius in Acts 10 to take from them a people for his name. And with this word, the word of the, of the apostles agree, just as is written. Now, this is Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. He's quoting. He says, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, and who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, so now, now James is drawing his conclusion. My judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that which is strangled and from blood. So the gospel of the early church was a little muddled in part. The attempt to synthesize Christianity and Judaism led to a gospel of grace through faith in Christ, plus a few stipulations, at least for the Gentiles. Now, one of Paul's objectives in the book of Galatians seemed to be the desire to remove any confusion and articulate a clear gospel, a singular gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. Undoubtedly, the Holy Spirit was at work in and through the Apostle Paul to effect this clarification. The divinely ordained means by which this was done was through the singular revelation given to the Apostle Paul. It was a singular revelation of Christ to Paul through a direct encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus without human mediation. Accordingly, Paul was given a unique mission in the history of the church, a singular calling. We have a singular gospel a singular revelation, now a singular calling. Paul did not receive the singular gospel from man, nor was he taught it by man. Christ interacted with Paul directly without human mediation, something that is not normative, which is why, in part, Paul's calling was singular. In verses 6 to 12 of the first chapter of Galatians, Paul explained the singular gospel he received through the singular revelation. Then in verses 13 through 24, which we'll talk about today, he provided insight into his singular calling. All of this was divinely orchestrated to give the Christian church clarity on the true gospel. Perhaps this was the divine response to the first church council's somewhat muddled gospel. The Lord loved his people enough to want them to have a clear articulation of the gospel. All singular calling seems to almost a necessity to provide the Christian community, indeed all of Christians throughout of time, with a pristine understanding of the gospel. So now let's read Galatians chapter 1 verses 13 through 24. So Paul writes, for you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Let me just comment here real quickly. The, the apostles, the original apostles, were largely marketplace people. They were not religious leaders. Paul is a religious leader. He is a budding religious leader. He's advancing in the ranks. He's becoming a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He is, he's really one of the most astute and knowledgeable men alive at that time. So he's very different in that way 
from the original 12 apostles. Reading on in Galatians, but when he had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal to his son to me. In other words, the key here is Christ was revealed to Paul. This is what has to happen to every person. If you come to Christ, it's because Christ has been revealed to you by himself. Normally, he does that through human mediation. We saw that from Romans chapter 10 in our last lesson. But in the case of Paul, it's a direct a direct encounter with Christ. That seems to be a, a, a not normative. In other words, a singularity. Then he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Let me go back. Let me back up and pick it up in a prior phrase. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go back up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that is Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. You notice James, the Lord's brother, was not listed as one of the original 12. But now at this point, he's recognized as an apostle. And then he makes a parenthetical comment. It's like he's swearing on an oath. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then he goes back to his history here. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Verses 13 and 14 focus on Paul's days before Christ, his B.C. days. In his former life, Paul was well known to as one of the most committed young Jewish zealots. Jewish zealots were disciples of the Jewish tradition. They were part of the leadership of the Jewish faith. He was very much a religious man. As a faithful Jewish disciple, Paul was intolerant of Christianity and proactively sought to destroy the church that Christ was building. The word used to describe Paul's zeal here is a word that we get the English word hyperbole from. In other words, it's, it's, it's a word that indicates an extreme. This word means to throw beyond and beyond measure. Paul's intolerance of the church in his B.C. days was extreme. He was fanatical in his opposition to the church. After the revelation of Christ given to Paul, he reflected and showed repentance relative to these B.C. days. So note what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul seemed to bear a sense of guilt and shame, perhaps a healthy humility. And this is a case where guilt and shame are not necessarily bad. Many times guilt and shame are very bad. They're blocks, but there's a sense, a healthy sense of this. And I think Paul was bearing that long after his conversion to Christianity for, for his persecution of the church in his BC days. Returning to Galatians, Paul's fanatical persecution of the church was noted in the use of the imperfect tense in the words that are translated persecuted in English and destroy in English. The imperfect tense in Greek implies past continuing action which means his lifestyle, Paul's lifestyle, was characterized by continuous, unrelenting, never-ending assault on Christianity until Christ himself revealed himself to Paul, after which he proactively now, he did a 180. 
he proactively began to build a church. No longer did he destroy it. No longer did he persecute it. He began to preach it. So that which that is what God does to those who encounter him. They are turned around. They are dramatically transformed. Now going on to verses 15 and 17, 15 through 17. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, that literally is, is out from the womb. And he who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Christ was revealed to Paul as his Savior and Lord. This was a, an act of sovereign grace. Paul was not seeking Christ. In fact, he was persecuting Christ. Paul did nothing to deserve or initiate the divine encounter with Christ. The revelation of Christ, his identity and nature, was a gift, a pure act of divine grace. Furthermore, Paul learned that encountering Christ was not a random event. It was not an accident. Paul's role in the meta-narrative of God was sovereignly ordained before Paul was born. A more literal translation of the Greek text could be Paul was marked out by God from his mother's womb. He was predestined by the grace of God to the work that God called him to. In time, Paul's calling was revealed. The encounter with Christ was only the starting point. There are a number of elements of Paul's conversion here that are are true of us or true of anyone. But there is one uniqueness, one singularity with it. That singularity is that, that Christ chose to directly encounter Paul. Normally, Christ uses human agents to encounter us, to, to as agents of redemption and salvation. But in Paul's case, that was not true. He had a, a direct encounter with Christ. That is a singular event, a singular aspect of his calling. The fact that we come to Christ through the revelation of Christ is not singular. That is true of everyone. See, a singular event is an event that's only true or only aspect of an event is only true at one, for one person at one point in time. It's not generally true for anyone else. So the encounter with Christ directly was the singularity, not the way that he came to Christ, which he had to be introduced to Christ. And then from there, there are a lot of point of a lot of Paul's life became very normative for all of us. Interestingly, after this uh, direct encounter with Christ and the healing of his sight, uh, mediated grace came through Ananias. Paul did not immediately go to Jerusalem, arguably the capital of Christianity, nor did he seek to talk with the apostles, the chief followers, because they were agents of God who founded Christianity. You would think he would go there, but Paul did not consult flesh and blood, which is a you know metaphorical way to basically say that he did not seek human counsel. Now, that's not, again, that's a singularity because we are to seek counsel. We're told in a multitude of counsel, there's wisdom. So don't take this as normative. That part is not normative. You've got to be very careful as you interpret this, that you recognize the singularities and you recognize what is normative. Paul's calling was a singular event because his assignment in the body of Christ to articulate a clear gospel was unique, similar to Christ's unique assignment to be the sacrifice of sin. So there's a singularity, and in two least a part of the call, Paul's calling, that's a singularity, which is the direct encounter with Christ. 
After Paul's encounter with Christ, he immediately began to proclaim Christ as the Son of God and confounded the Jews by using the scripture to confirm his claim. So here you have one of the most radical you know, opponents of the church coming to Damascus to destroy the church. He has an encounter with Christ. Now he begins to build the church. This is confusing everyone. The people in Damascus don't know what to think, particularly the Jews. In fact, the Jews get so, so befuddled by all this because Paul, being a great scholar, is now connecting the dots. He's connecting the Old Testament prophecies to Christ. He's connecting all these Old Testament metaphors and allusions and the theophanies to Christ. And they don't know what to do with this. They're amazed. He's saying Jesus was the suffering servant, the prophet like Moses, the king like David, the priest like Melchizedek. There are over 44 references to the, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He connects these to Christ. Well, you can, you can see here you have a very knowledgeable Hebrew scholar standing in front of these Jewish people in, in Damascus proclaiming a totally different message than they had heard. And they thought this guy was against Christianity and now he's for it and they're confused and they get angry and they get so angry that they want to kill him. And so that causes Paul then to withdraw. So he's let out of a, down a, by a basket uh, one night because they, the Jews were actually uh, camped out at the doors ready to capture him and kill him, but he was able to escape and he was able then to go to Arabia for a period of time, uh, probably there to rest and uh, maybe just reconsider what had happened to him and get really clear on on what Christ had done for him, go through scripture, thinking through Jesus as the Christ. And then he returned to Damascus. And then he's going to go back down to Jerusalem. So going on to verses 18 through 24. After Paul returned to Damascus, he stayed three years. In other words, apparently he between Arabia and Damascus, He's there about three years and finally went to see Peter in Jerusalem. And while he's there, he also sees James, the Lord's brother, who was regarded as one of the apostles, though he was not one of the original 12. In recording his travels, Paul felt compelled to emphasize the, his record of these events, that they were true. He was not speaking deliberate falsehoods, given that Paul's conversion to Christianity was so sudden and unexpected Perhaps his enemies used this against him, claiming that he lacked veracity, or maybe he was a hypocrite. Paul then felt compelled to defend his character with a parenthetical comment. So it's like taking an oath, oath of office or taking an oath when you're in a courtroom to tell the truth. He said, in what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Finally, continuing with his history, Paul states that after he went to Jerusalem, he went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, which is north. And in that region, there's the city of Antioch, which is where he apparently settled, and that became his base of apostolic work. Now, I don't know if we, when he settled in Antioch, he knew that was going to be his base, but that's ultimately what happened. Perhaps Paul did not seek to know the Christians in Judea because they only knew him as their enemy. Paul's unexpected and dramatic conversion was an enigma to them and perhaps lacked credibility. The Judean people were probably confused and somewhat skeptical about what happened to Paul. You can believe the people, if the people in Damascus were skeptical, the people in Judea were skeptical too. They probably knew little of this, of his testimony, and they knew that the persecutor of Christianity became a preacher of Christianity. They didn't understand it, but they glorified God. 
Well, I want to talk about one theological point today and make one application of that theological point. I want to talk about calling. I think calling is is so critical to get and it's so poorly understood generally in my experience in Christianity today. The concept of personal individual calling is foreign to many who have embraced a, or been influenced by the theory of evolution, which is just pervasive in our society, our culture today, both with pagans and with the professing Christian world. The atheistic presupposition intimates that, that everything is a product of randomness. This means there's no meaning or purpose to anything, particularly human existence. We're just a product of slime and time, and we're just $3.27 worth of chemicals. That's the kind of thing you hear from the atheist. The concept of personal individual calling implies meaning and purpose, and calling presumes a creator who issues the call. We don't self-create, therefore we can't self-call. Therefore, it is the purview of the creator alone to define a purpose for each for each one who he has called. And since he creates you, he calls you for something. In fact, Proverbs says that God makes everyone for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, that's a really hard text, but that is the word of God. And it shows the intentionality of his sovereign God. And you see, an example of that is Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. God raised him up to serve his purpose, and he was a rank pagan. As far as we know, he never came to Christ, never was saved. He was a vessel of dishonor, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 9. And the, the potter has the right to make both vessels of honor and dishonor, and we as humans have no right to challenge that or question that. That's Paul's argument in Romans 9. So going on. The court concept of personal individual calling implies meaning and purpose. There are some who claim the right to self-call or self-define. This is the secularist human, humanist position. No created being has the right to trump the will of God. And given that the creator has chosen to work everything according to his own will, this intimates that no human can or has a right to attempt to self-define his or her calling. Given a created universe and an intentional creator, does every human being have a call? a purpose for existence defined by the creator. In Galatians 1 verse 16, Paul states that he was set apart from his mother's womb, which is a metaphor to say from the beginning, from my physical existence at the very beginning, there was no time that I was not set apart for the purpose of God. From the time of conception, I was set apart for the purpose of God. And that's, this is the way we all are from conception. And this is true of everyone, even the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the ethnic groups. Ethnic groups are people who share the same habits and patterns of living, including customs and religious traditions. And many times they share the same skin color and language. Commonly in scripture, the term ethnic group refers to Gentiles. This is the Greek word ethnos. That's the common word that's translated ethnic. Although sometimes the ethnos may be used to refer to both Jews and, and, uh, and Gentiles, which is the case in the great, what we call the Great Commission. I would rather call that the creation mandate. That's uh, Matthew chapter 28. Paul's calling was to all ethnic groups. So was Peter's. Note the word of God regarding Paul spoken to Ananias as recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 9. So God says, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. 
Acts 9, verse 15. So Paul had a call to all ethnic groups, including the Jews, but his primary call was to the Gentiles. Now, Peter, on the other hand, he had a call to all ethnic groups, but his primary call was to the Jews. Note Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 7, regarding Peter and himself. He says this, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's Paul, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. Of course, the term circumcised is a reference to the Jews, and uncircumcised is a reference to the Gentiles. So each of these men were called generally to, to all ethnic groups, but specifically, primarily to different ethnic groups, one to the Jews and the other one to everyone else. The singular call of God on Paul was both based on a singular revelation of the singular gospel. The idea of a singularity implies uniqueness and therefore something that is not repeatable. The singular gospel is the only gospel and therefore the gospel for all. It, not can be, it cannot be duplicated. It is the one and only gospel. It is that sense. It is singular. It is therefore normative. But the singular revelation of Christ directly to Paul, that was not a normative way in which Christ reveals himself to people. Normally, Christ reveals himself through human agencies. But he didn't in the case of Paul. Since human agency seems to be normative to facilitate conversion to Christ, Christ's direct intervention in Paul's conversion was unique. The uniqueness of Paul's calling was not, not that he was called, but how he was called. This makes his calling a singularity. The reason for Paul's singular, singular calling may have been the lack of clarity by the early apostles regarding the gospel as evidenced by the conclusion of the first church council as to the nature of salvation. Remember, we read how they put stipulations on salvation. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, but you have to do these other things too. Therefore, perhaps Paul was given increased clarity on the gospel, the singular gospel, and was given the singular call to proclaim the singular gospel. In other words, the universal singular gospel came to us perhaps in its purest form by a singular revelation given to the apostle Paul. Consequently, Paul's calling was in part a singularity, the singularity of direct divine intervention, which does not seem to be normative. But the reality of his personal individual calling is not singularity. Everyone, and in particular, every Christian is called God to a particular work assignment. In chapter two of, this, of his letter to the Ephesians, Paul provides this perspective when he says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's verse 10 of chapter two. He's, he gives us that verse after he tells us what the gospel is, which is a gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that faith is not works. And he, he tells us why God sovereignly saves us. He saves us to do a work assignment. That's the purpose. Everyone has a calling, has a work assignment from God. That is a clear, universal truth. The fact is that Paul was just one of many in that regard. But his calling was unique in the sense that Christ chose, chose to directly reveal himself to Paul. The rest of us, we have been, Christ has been revealed to us by human agents. Let's talk about application. One application, that is, you know, how we think about calling in the workplace. Pedestrian view of the purpose of organizations is to make money, to gain fame, and or achieve influence. These are common traits of success and it is widely assumed that anyone can achieve success independent of God. 
Furthermore, people are simply pawns of management in the process of achievement assess. Well, this is pedestrian thinking today. Generally, managers assume that people are fungible, interchangeable, and hiring decisions are made based on the perception of whether or not a candidate can help an organization achieve temporal success. But temporal success and true success are not necessarily the same. True success is alignment with God. Temporal success can be achieved without alignment with God. But temporal success not aligned with God will not endure. In my experience, it is rare that organizational leaders have enough Christian thinking. I'm talking about even professing Christian organizational leaders have enough Christian thinking to view organizations as tools of alignment with God. In fact, when you have conversations like that with them, they usually use, look at me with a blank stare, like they have no clue where I'm coming from. Instead, pagan worldviews are practiced by most managers, even those who profess to be Christians. Sadly, that's a reality. I, I can tell you stories about that, and I don't have time right now, but just real quickly, I remember sitting in a, in a conference um, led by a professing Christian, um, and I had an opportunity at lunch to sit down with this lady and talk with her, and I began to ask her things about personal calling and how that played into her teaching. And so I, I knew she had no answer, and she just stared at me. She did not know what to do with that. And so her, her response with that was just to ignore me. And she never responded to me and never and never mentioned it in her afternoon session. She just flat ignored it. And this is all they can do. And she professes to be a Christian. And she sold herself. This company hired her because she professed to be a Christian. And she was a management consultant teaching great things about, about how to do business biblically. And she had no sense of God's purpose in individual calling. So... This, this is what really plagues companies today, is they lack this understanding. Furthermore, organizational leaders, you know, because they have this poor thinking and think like pagans, they, they adopt many pagan ideas like the idea of human fungibility, which is a very common idea for managers. It's rooted in the presupposition that people do not have a unique calling from the creator. This is a corollary of atheism and secular humanism. From a Christian worldview, this assumption is erroneous. God creates people with intent and purpose and grants favor to those who work aligned with their divinely ordained purpose. Sadly, many professing Christians don't understand this reality and believe in human fungibility. Furthermore, many view, particularly though in the natural, <clears throat> with disdain. They view work with disdain because they think it's beneath them. It's not relevant in light of eternity. I'm saved. I'm going to be with he going to heaven. So here, here and now, it's just a... Uh, it's just like a little purgatory I have to go through before I get to heaven. And so when you think that way, you don't view work as with any kind of sense of dignity and you lack a sound work ethic. Now, managers who experience professing Christians with an unsound work ethic frequently fire them and sometimes decide not to ever hire professing Christians again. These employers prefer to hire non-Christians whom they believe have a better work ethic. In some cases, they're right. The problem is they're still wrong because they don't understand how God works. See, managers who embrace the erroneous assumption of human fungibility and the policy of hiring non-Christians don't understand God's universe and how it's been designed to operate. To work well and manage well in, in a created universe requires alignment with the creator who defines the rules of success. We don't get to self-define the rules, including the rules of success. One of the issues that complicates this discussion is the reality that people under judgment can have temporal success. So it looks like pagans can prosper. This means that using temporal success as a metric for success is misleading because in reality, pagans don't 
really prosper. A better definition of success is obedience to God, which produces eternal blessings and generally produces natural blessings as well. If eternal blessings are more important than natural blessings, one can be successful by obeying God, whether or not there is temporal success. A simple example of this reality is Christ's death on the cross. Temporally, it looked like a failure, but beyond the temporal, it was the greatest act of obedience in history that led to the greatest blessing in history. Therefore, it was the greatest success in history. Temporal success alone is not the metric of success. So given a correct definition of success and given that God created everyone for his purpose, then hiring people should be in part a process of discerning the call of God on people and employing people congruent with the calling. And so doing managers should help people find and gain vision for the call of God on their lives and provide a context for them to fulfill that call. Organizations so managed lay a predicate for organizational success. Implicit in this thought process is the predicate that God creates and saves people to accomplish a work assignment in his meta narrative. For most, part of the divinely ordained work assignment will be employment in a workplace scenario. And for managers who recognize that their organizations have a divinely ordained calling in God's meta narrative, these employers understand that their organizations must be populated by workers who are working in their individual callings. This is the only way to truly build successful organizations that is working congruent with individual divine calling. Organizations that employ people this way will enjoy true success and very likely temporal success as well. But temporal success without true success is no success. The only way to true success individually and organizationally is through obedience to the will and ways of God, because God works with intent and purpose in every area of life, individually and organizationally. Consequently, people are not fungible. They must be employed according to their calling. Failure to do so is abusive, and people must embrace a sound work ethic. That is, managers also must embrace a sound work ethic, because temporal work is a part of the divine calling of every human being. When managers build organizations based on these biblical principles, excellent products and services will be delivered, all will be blessed, and God will be glorified. May we have the grace to live in this reality. In Jesus' name, amen.